This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard of Cardiology Specialist of Birmingham, Alabama at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. Welcome to our podcast on mitral regurgitation or the leaky mitral valve. Uh, with us today is Dr. Mustafa Ahmed. He's uh, director of the Interventional and Structural Program at the University of Alabama, and is, he's very familiar with the problem of mitral insufficiency and mitral regurgitation. So, Mustafa, tell us a little bit, what does it mean if your mitral valve is leaking, and how common is that? The mitral regurgitation, or mitral insufficiency as it's alternatively known, means a leaky mitral valve. The mitral valve is one of the four valves in the heart. You know, people have commonly heard about the mitral valve because of mitral valve prolapse, which is one of the actual conditions that can, in some people, lead to a, mitral valve, a leaky mitral valve. And the mitral valve is basically there to stop blood leaking backwards from the main chamber of the heart every time it pumps. So every time the heart beats, the blood is leaving the main pumping chamber and being pushed out to the body where the organs that need the blood with oxygen in it can get it. But when the mitral valve leaks, instead of going forward to the body, some of the blood inside the main pumping chamber now goes backwards. And that leak of the mitral valve, which is meant to prevent it, is known as mitral regurgitation. Valve disease is becoming more and more common. There was a important article about 10 years ago that came out called the public health implications of valve disease. So two things have happened in the last couple of decades. Firstly, making the diagnosis. So, you know, we've got to the stage where many doctors now, you know, have their own handheld ultrasound machine, even on their phones. And so, you know, anyone going to a doctor and getting checked now or going to hospital that gets an ultrasound scan, known as an echo, it can pick up these, these leaks. And so it's becoming much more commonly diagnosed. But the main factor, the most important factor is aging. The population is living longer. And with these diagnostic uh, tools that we have, the incidence so, and the prevalence, which means the amount being discovered and the amount that is present of a significantly leaky valve has really spiked over the years and is now seen as a major public health issue. So it's actually much more common than we used to think and common enough to where really important to have strategies that identify and treat this. You know, and why, why treat this? Because ultimately what we're trying to treat with the leaky valve is symptoms of heart failure because that is what it leads to once it becomes severe enough. So, Mustafa, are all the leaky valve the same? I mean, is there different types of uh, leaky valve? So, are we talking about just the mitral valve here? You're correct, you're correct. Yeah. So, different types. So, let's start really broad. Let's talk into primary and secondary, or degenerative and functional, or as they commonly may be known. And so what, what, what's uh, involved in a primary leak? That's where the valve itself is the problem. So in primary mitral regurgitation, the valve itself is defective. 
the tissue of the valve may become floppy or full of calcium or thickened and may stop working like it's meant to work because of that. Think of a think of a uh, you know any kind of valve that develops a leak due to that that reason. Now, secondary mitral regurgitation. You know, the mitral valve itself is, is a very complex structure. The reason it's so complex is it's very intertwined with the structure of the heart. So once your heart becomes large or, you know, abnormally shaped uh, due to one of many different reasons, that itself can have an effect on the valve or the leaflets of the valve don't come together and therefore leads to a leak. And that's known as secondary mitral regurgitation. And that's really critical because there's really vastly varying strategies between the treatment of the two as things stand. So primary mitral regurgitation, the valve itself is, is defective. And a good example of that's mitral valve prolapse, which we can talk about. And secondary mitral regurgitation, or also known as functional, is where the heart itself becomes abnormally structured and shaped, which leads to distortion of the valve itself, which leads to a leaky valve. So there can be several reasons to have a, uh, um, a primary failure of the mitral valve. You mentioned the mitral valve prolapse, but what other examples do you have, you know, for our patients? So when we, when we think about degenerative um, or primary, the, the, most, the most common people have heard of, not necessarily the most common around, but the people have heard of is mitral valve prolapse. And what happens in mitral valve prolapse is a process called myxomatous degeneration. So the valve tissue itself is usually, you know, a tan-like uh, structure, uh, leather-like, which is pliable and meets together in the middle. What happens in myxomatous valve disease uh, or mitral valve prolapse, the true form of, you know, mitral valve prolapse, which affects valve function, is that tissue becomes globular, thickened, stretched, and starts to become incompetent. So instead of meeting, it becomes much more elastic. And that leads to part of the valve going, you know, being essentially like an elastic band which stretches too far, um, losing its function. And this is important because this kind of valve disease can often be repaired. And so mitral valve prolapse is its own distinct kind of valve disease because it has its own distinct management strategies. Other forms of disease that can affect the valve itself, you know, you can get um, infection on the valve and holes in the valve itself. Part of the valve can be eaten away. You can have part of the valve replaced with a calcium or calcium deposits. You can have, a, you know, distortion of the valve structure, um, things known as indentations and clefts which come inside the valve and stop its uh, function coming together. And sometimes you can have a congenitally abnormal valve, uh, which is seen, you know, people are born with those type of valves, but several different types of uh, variations where, the, you know, the primary problem is with the valve itself. We don't see too many cases of rheumatic you know, fever causing mitral insufficiency so much anymore, certainly in our country. But I guess, you know, if you look at uh, Africa or South America, maybe still, you know, some relevance there. Yeah, you know, the, uh, the countries you mentioned, uh, the, the Asian countries, India and, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, 
the my, the rheumatic mitral valve is still very common and a major public health problem there. You know, not so much anymore in developed countries. We don't really see that in the U.S. much. Due to the use of antibiotics during a during the infections when uh, younger, but those are still important causes of disease. You know, we still see several of those cases per year, and, and as you mentioned, very important. That also has a distinct form of affecting the valve and the apparatus of the valve below it. It causes it to become, you know, uh, infiltrated, thickened, uh, and almost almost fuses the parts of the valve together. And that can lead to, most often, I would say, a tight valve, but it can lead to, in cases over time, a leaky valve too. You know, I'm so against uh, the medication given for weight loss, you know, just because over the years we've had, you know, so much, uh, so many drugs that have caused some problem with the mitral valve in particular. You know, um, yeah, you're mentioning mentioning some some good classic forms of the disease here. Um, probably about and you 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 may remember this uh, better than I do, but probably about I guess 15 to 20 years ago, there was a major surge of people coming in with incompetent valves, both on the left and the right hand side, and these weight loss drugs, um, which are given often by by the weight loss clinics. Um, I think Fan Fan, right, was was, yeah. was one of the names of these, and they were leading to people come in with this just this strange form of valve disease, where the, the valve itself again was affected by whatever substances were going throughout the blood from from those medications being given. It was a very unfortunate time period. Many people ended up requiring surgery and valve replacements mm. uh, for those kind of valves. I will tell you, you know, in, in the setting of a busy valve center, we don't see that much anymore. But what we do see is many valves affected and you know the mechanism is not 100% determinate um so there's still a large proportion of valves that don't really fit perfectly inside any category but you know you still see it and clearly there's a component of valve infiltration itself while we're talking about this you know there's various forms of autoimmune disease such as lupus uh, and other forms of rheumatic uh, conditions which can lead to infiltration of the valve sometimes growths on the valve also which can affect valve functioning, which leads to leakiness of the, of the valve itself. Well, we talked about the, the primary problem with the valve. Now, maybe we could expand a little bit on the secondary uh, reasons to have a mitral regurgitation. You mentioned, obviously, the very dilated cardiomyopathy where the heart is so large, and there is a lack of coaptation or closure of these valves. But we have also other circumstances where we have you know, myocardial infarction with, you know, rupture of the papillary muscle. We have this uh, condition of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy where we have a mitral regurgitation. Can you expand a little bit on this, Mustafa? Yeah, so again, when a patient comes in with, with mitral regurgitation, we want to know, we do want to know what's causing this. Is it the valve itself? Is this something that needs to be addressed? Is it just a primary valve problem? Or is it functional and due to the, you know, the second, is it functional due to the heart itself remodeling? And, you know, we'll keep saying that throughout this uh, conversation, but it's really important to get secondary mitral regurgitation correct because you've got to treat that secondary component. That becomes the primary treatment strategy. And so first one you mentioned, you know, it's worth, if you're a patient with a mitral valve disease, it's worth, hard to get across in a podcast, right? But it's definitely worth, looking at a model of what the mitral valve looks like. 
and it's a very complex structure. The, the valve itself, the hinge point of the valve is known as the annulus, the mitral valve annulus. And uh, that's the ring uh, in which, you know, essentially in which the, the valve sits. When we do a valve replacement, we essentially sew the new valve into the annulus uh, and, and that becomes kind of the hinge point for where that's put in. And so dilatation, so enlargement of that annulus uh, can lead to the valve being pulled apart. And that can be caused by any, any condition that enlarges the heart. It's important to know that's not just the bottom of the heart, that's the top chamber of the heart enlargement that can cause that too. We know uh, atrial fibrillation, uh, an irregular heartbeat is extraordinarily common. Um, those patients over time get enlargement of the top chamber of the heart. And that alone can lead to the annulus enlarging. And that can lead to an incompetent or leaky mitral valve. The lower chamber of the heart in, in many forms of heart failure can get larger. Some of those are known as a cardiomyopathy, um, a dilated form of that, where the heart itself, uh, for many different reasons, can be burnt out. Blood pressure are high over a long time, could be genetic components, could be, you know, multiple other things, um, viral infections, in, in, you know, inflammation of the heart, things that things that are diagnosed by, by you know, uh, clinically and then seeing this enlarged picture of a heart, that also pulls back, pulls apart that annulus and stops the valve meeting together, leading to a leaky valve. But also the mitral valve, I want you to think of it like a parachute. And so, you know, in a parachute, you've got the person dangling down and then like 100 strings, right, going up towards the parachute itself. So in a primary problem of the valve, like mitral valve prolapse, just imagine someone takes some scissors and cuts like 25% of those cords that are holding the, the person to the, to the parachute. So part of the, part of the valve will just start flying up into the top chamber. That's what primary mitral valve prolapse is like. So in the secondary form of uh, mitral vegetation, the enlargement of the heart, heart itself leads to these, these strings being pulled down. Imagine that the, you know, you're the, the person on the bottom of the parachute and but these strings you are pulled much much further away from those strings and so they are kind of elastic right so if you if the weight is much much heavier the strings are pulled down and so those strings known as cords are elongated so when you have enlargement of the heart they are pulled away and that distorts the valve and stops it meeting again and so that's when that's why you know enlargement of the heart chamber and a process known as Kind of spherical remodeling, which can be seen after after these these insults, can lead to an incompetent mitral valve. And then finally is the is the heart attack. Um, in the heart attack, the the two large muscles, which lead to uh, you know, which keep that valve uh, anchored, the papillary muscles. And it's it's actually pretty hard getting this concept across because more than just a you know an anatomic structure, these things move in concert. There's about 10, 15 components which all move in concert to, to keep that going well. But the papillary valves are a very important part of that. In a heart attack, one of the walls which those muscles attach to uh, can die, become thickened and fibrous. And that leads to distortion of the muscle and the cords attached to that muscle. And again, the valve itself now can no longer go up and meet and, 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 and function as a valve. And that leads to, to leakiness also. There's a, for, for those interested, there's a classification known as Carpentier's classification. You know, it's not, it's not it doesn't 100% encompass everything, but it, it is worth looking at that to see the different types of, of uh, 
you know, defects seen that lead to mitral insufficiency. And actually, let me, you mentioned uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That's an important one too, because that's dynamic mitral regurgitation. Now, all forms of mitral regurgitation can be dynamic. This, this is important because just because at rest, you don't have a severely leaky mitral valve. Many times it's critical to see what happens with exercise or activity or increased heart rate or increased pressures to see what the effect of the valve is because the different those different parameters can cause the valve to be leaky at, at different times. You know, many people advocate for when, when looking into valve disease, doing some form of exercise testing or bike testing to see what the valve looks like. And hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, like you mentioned, with a thick heart muscle, that can lead to a process of distortion of the valve called a SAM, systolic anterior motion. And that's where basically part of the valve, instead of being able to meet in the middle, is sucked in uh, by an effect, uh, a venturi type effect, uh, uh, which is most commonly hypothesized to cause it, that pulls the valve away from where it's meant to meet. And again, leads to a leaky valve in the middle. Uh, think of the valve in those situations, or many of the ones we just mentioned, like a door that closes. But think of the door frame just being pulled wider or pulled away or stopping basically the, you know, the two bits of the door meeting in the middle and leaving it open. And that bit that's open, where blood can now leak backwards, that's known as a cooptation gap. Well, I think your hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is so interesting. Um, I think we're probably going to dedicate a whole podcast just to discuss that. And particularly, there's, there's some new treatment that has just uh, become available. And that was discussed at the Euro European Congress of Cardiology, um, which, um, you know, I think we're going to need to discuss it just as a separate topic. It's a whole field by itself. You know, it's really Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so Mustafa, let's go back on that mitral insufficiency. Um, obviously, there's different severities. I mean, it could be very mild mitral insufficiency, but there can be some moderate and, and very severe one uh, with quite a bit of impact on the left ventricle. Can you discuss that maybe a little further and what kind of complication can you expect, particularly when the leaky valve is very severe? Yeah, you know, one of the most... So, so you know, well, today on the podcast, we're all we're all cardiologists, and you often sit and read echo as part of your practice. And one thing that often gets patients is, and I'll say this is, you know, it's uh, the world is uh, is very connected now. Patients get copies of their echo reports, and so when you're a cardiologist, you sit down, you read the echo report, and you put mild mitral regurgitation. And when you're actually signing the report, you're like, ah, that means nothing. Mild mitral regurgitation. I'm going to sign off on that. Yes, it's a little leak. But when the patient gets that, they read on their report, read mitral regurgitation. It's, a, it's an extraordinary source of anxiety. And people will come in and ask. I can't tell you the amount of second opinions we have to give for what is a very, very mild form of the disease. But this is why it's really important for, to explain to patients why what that means and why we're not worried if we're not worried. So think of it as three three different uh, severities, uh, just to simplify, you know, mild, moderate, and severe. So those are the three kind of categories of uh, severity. You can mix it in the middle to get mild to moderate and moderate to severe, and above severe, maybe torrential. And then you have symptomatic and asymptomatic forms of the disease. So you can have someone with a severe leak that may not have symptoms. You can have someone with a moderate to severe leak that may be very symptomatic and, and need treatment addressing. 
And so when we're coming up with uh, strategies as to what the next step is, really important to accurately diagnose the uh, severity and very important to find out whether there are any symptoms potentially attributed to it. So a mild leak, if we, you know, let's use some medical lingo here, but how many mils of blood are regurgitating into a top chamber? And so a small amount might be like, you know, 15 mils or up to 30 mils. And that would be known as mild. That means only a little bit of blood's going backward. A mild leak does not really cause symptoms. Um, nothing really needs doing about it. Um, in primary mitral regurgitation, so the mitral valve prolapses and such, that means the valve is still fairly competent, but the elastic cores that are being elongated due to the, you know, the process of uh, prolapse, that leads to a bit of the leak uh, going backwards. The, I, I don't want to say it's, you know, this is, as, as things stand, no treatment is needed for that, but it's important to watch that over time and see two things. One is, you know, does that potentially get worse in the setting of exercise, or is that stable over time? And so those will be serially followed. Often people will listen to, you'll hear a murmur as one of the first most common things that is leads to the diagnosis of this, and then an echocardiogram. And so the next stage would be moderate, and that would be between about 30 to 60 mils of blood going the wrong way. Uh, Again, we're using these numbers, but I really do dislike these binary classifications because those dealing with microvegetation day in, day out, we realize some of the pitfalls in calculating those numbers. So an integrated approach is really, really strongly advised, looking at multiple different things when trying to categorize this. But in the moderate form of disease, again, you rarely, rarely will treat this, but we do know that's not necessarily benign. There is a significant amount of blood going back into the top chamber of the heart, which over time actually can lead to enlargement of both chambers, the top and the bottom chamber of the heart, uh, inflammation and irritation of the top chamber of the heart. And remember, all the blood that goes back that's leaky, that then goes back into the main chamber of the heart, causing that to enlarge. And so moderate regurgitation over time, although doesn't necessarily need any kind of procedural intervention, as things stand, we do try and keep a close eye on that. Um, and in functional mitral regurgitation, really important to start treating those factors uh, really strongly that, that have led to that leak. So medications for heart failure and others, which we'll discuss in a while. Then severe leak. So that's, you know, moderate to severe or severe. That's greater than 45 mils of blood uh, kind of thing um, going backwards. That's quite a lot of blood now going backwards into the top chamber of heart. And as you can imagine, not only is that blood going backwards, but that's blood that should have gone forward to the body. So the body starts noticing this. Now, the heart's very smart. The, the, you know, I spent years actually in a lab studying this, uh, looking at models of this. And then, and then we also you know, did a lot of work with the MRI scanning to see what is the effect of this blood going backwards that's coming back into the heart. So that was with our good friend, uh, Lou Delatelio, isn't it? Absolutely. The, uh, <laughs> you know, we're going to have to get him on one of these one day. Oh, the, he's done uh, a lot of research. In that it'll case. be, yeah, it's going to be a, a very much, a, it'll be a very, uh, you know, basic mechanism of disease conversation, but very interesting. And 
really, you know, we were we were kind of at the forefront. And um, this is going back, gosh, 13, 14 years ago, but we were at the forefront of trying to find out because no one ever found out, uh, well, is there any good medical treatments just for primary MR? And when do you operate on these people? And, and it was part of that whole kind of uh, learning what was going on. And so we found a, a couple of things back when, when looking at this. So the heart itself and primary mitral regurgitation, so people, for example, with mitral valve prolapse or just a problem with the valve itself, the heart, which is normally, let's use, some, uh, let's use the right and wrong uh, uh, version of football. So obviously English football being the correct one <laughs> and American football. <laughs> some people may argue. <laughs> and American football being the other one. But, you know, when you have an American football, right, it's elliptical. The shape of a... I want you to take, imagine the shape of an, uh, a, you know, an American football and then an English football or a soccer ball. And so the, the football or the soccer ball is round-shaped, right? So what happens over time with the leaky valve, because of that volume comes in, you go from having an elliptical-shaped heart to a spherical or more soccer football-shaped heart. And so that leads, that leads to worsening of this process because the valve then gets distorted and the valve starts pulling apart even more. And that's one of the early signs of a process known as remodeling. So when someone comes in with mitral regurgitation, not only should you look at how much leak do they have, but there's ways of looking, um, more nuanced ways of measuring the heart with the newer forms of 3D and uh, dimensional echocardiography and also uh, other allied forms of imaging such as mitral uh, magnetic resonance scanning, you can see subtle changes of the heart, which may start to give you a clue or insight. Do we need to do something about this? Or, you know what, this is more significant than thought. And sometimes, you know what, this probably is more severe than we think. We need to take this patient from a nuanced evaluation. Uh, factors such as the sphericity index, which is the height and the shape, you know, heart, the wall thickness, the mass of the heart. It's interesting because when you have high blood pressure over time, your heart is basically like picking up a weight. It, it, it grows bigger, 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 bigger. It's like a process called hypertrophy. And that's called concentric hypertrophy, which means it thickens in layers, another layer, another layer, to try and add more strength to absorb that well stress. Mitral regurgitation is interesting because it leads to a different form of hypertrophy. And over the years, we've given these people all the medications which we thought treated the concentric form. But we were giving those to the people with this different form, which is called eccentric. So what happens in mitral regurgitation is the, thick, the heart doesn't become thicker. It actually becomes thinner over time with the primary mitral regurgitation. And the heart is held together by this extracellular matrix. It's like this mesh, which keeps the muscles of the heart. They come and adhere to this and they function around this and that really leads to normal functioning of the heart. When the heart gets larger, like with the leak, it's called a volume overload of mitral regurgitation. That mesh is pulled apart. The muscles are no longer in optimal position. They do not pump as well. And the stress of the heart increases because the walls are not thick enough to absorb it. So that eccentric hypertrophy leads to increased wall stress, decreased mass, and increase size of the heart. Those are the three factors in, in kind of the Laplace equation that actually lead to wall stress and worsen it. So that's why we say over time this worsens. The things that make it bad in the first place get worse with a bigger leak and lead to even more worse leak. Increased chamber size, 
thinner walls, uh, you know, increased wall stress. And so interestingly also, we don't have, so, so I know a question you're going to ask me is, what medicine should we treat primary mitral regurgitation with? And so, you know, we'll, we'll get there, but, but, you know, we didn't, until recently, we really didn't even know what was going on. The processes that I've just described have, have only been really well kind of documented in the last few, you know, last five, 10 years plus. And we knew this because we used to go into the surgeries when we were fixing those valves and we took pieces of the heart tissue. And then we actually examined those and, and kind of looked at this different genetic, uh, you know, expression profiling going on in those eccentrically remodeled hearts. I'm sure Dr. Delatelio should be very proud. You were probably <laughs> his best fellow. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, we and those were good days. Yeah, wonderful. So <clears throat> obviously it's a question of volume overload. And, and you mentioned a little bit uh, something about that. You tried to kind of, if I'm a patient, you know, how does it manifest itself, you know, this mitral insufficiency? And I guess it depends, you know, how quick the problem develops. And uh, as it develops, uh, chronically over the years, the, the findings or the symptoms are going to be, not the findings, but the symptoms are going to be very subtle, uh, maybe in the decreased exercise tolerance or increasing problem with shortness of breath. But, you know, how about if this develops uh, acutely? You have a, you know, a mitral prolapse and all of a sudden, you know, you have a ruptured cordy. How these patients are going to feel? Yeah, you know, let's go back to that parachute analogy. Um, it's the same thing. It's like, imagine you on a parachute and someone cut 50% of their strings. I mean, only one bad thing is going to happen at that point, which is that parachute stops working and you kind of fall to the ground very fast. Hmm. And so acute, severe mitral regurgitation in the setting of what you just mentioned, which is caudal rupture, uh, or flail, an acute flail leaflet of the valve, or even worse, the entire papillary muscle, which, which is disastrous. But that leads to this situation where suddenly your heart, which has had no time to acclimatize to this, is presented with a, just an unlimited amount of blood going backwards. It means two things, right? It means none of the blood's going forward because it's all going backwards. But also when it goes backwards, it's leading to congestion, which goes back into the lungs and really overloads those. So the presentation is of cardiogenic shock, cardiac shock, and acute heart failure, low blood pressure, um, a feeling of essentially drowning to death. Your lungs will fill with water. You won't be able to get oxygen in for that purpose. You will struggle to maintain your blood pressure because none of the blood wants to go forward. And your body enters a state of shock, which means you, you're just not getting the perfusion or the blood the pressure needed to drive blood forward. Um, it's a medical emergency and needs to be, you've got to hope you're in or near a hospital at the time that happens or get to one fast. I will tell you, every now and then I'll see a chronic presentation of this, um, you know, a more where I suspect most of the valve's been leaky for a while and then finally kind of some of it um, ruptures and leads to this flare leaflet. Those patients are still often very symptomatic, but the difference in those cases is both the top and the bottom chambers of the heart have had time to become compliant enough and enlarge enough to allow the what we call the physiologic needs of the body to be met. So the blood can still go forward and the body has adapted over time, still needs fixing, but those, you know, those are not an acute deathly presentation, but acute severe mitral regurgitation uh, is a medical emergency and needs to be managed with an immediate stabilization and intervention. Mm -hmm. Pretty clear. 
So let's say this other scenario, the family physician um, examines the patient as a yearly physical and he finds a, a, a murmur, you know, a heart murmur, and he suspects mitral insufficiency and refers you to the patient. How do you work up the patient for mitral insufficiency or mitral regurgitation? Yeah. So first talking to the patient, history is very important. When did this come on? How long has it been coming on over? And particularly when the patients get older, speaking to the family members with them, find out have these patients been slowing down over time? Um, are they getting fatigued and tired? And then looking for symptoms and signs of heart failure, swelling, shortness of breath, um, much decreased ability to do the things they used to do before. Um, the, these kind of you know signs and symptoms over time. And so that would lead to the next stage of the workup, which is once you've heard the suggestive murmur particularly. And I will tell you, if you hear a murmur that suggests severe MR and your echo doesn't show it, you need to do the echo again. Um, I can't tell you the amount of times where going with the physical exam and your clinical history and, and your findings ultimately mean, you know, because we're all very dismissive nowadays. You see the echo and you don't even bother kind of going near the patient. That's your inclination, but you really must do the whole thing. And so once the you are suspicious and, you, and you, you've uh, taken those factors and then, you know, medical factors, other history factors, things that can give you an uh, uh, you know, idea into mechanisms. Then you do the echocardiogram. That's, that's, that's the bread and butter as a diagnosis. It's an ultrasound scan of the heart. It's a, you know, it's a non-invasive test. So it's done by the, putting the gel on top of the heart and, and kind of uh, scanning around. And that really tells you what the leak is doing. Um, it should tell you in most cases how bad the, the presence or not of a leak. It can pretty much tell you the mechanism or what's causing the leak, whether it's primary or secondary. And it will give you information on the heart chamber sizes, the top and the bottom chamber of the heart, and information on the rest of the heart and the other valves and the pumping function of the heart too. So that's the next kind of step in the diagnosis of that. Now, many patients that come in, when you're trying to figure out next what you'll do, they may undergo a process of a transesophageal echocardiogram, which um, gives you much more detailed information on the structure and function of the valve itself. Most of this is now done in 3D. And that's where a camera, uh, a small camera is put down the throat. Um, and that's where you have the closest contact to the heart. Uh, it's called a TEE. In England, we used to call it a TOE. But yeah, here a TEE test um, lasts about anywhere between you know 10 to 20 minutes and provides that important detailed information on the heart itself. And then information you'll need to know, such as pressures inside the heart, pulmonary artery pressures, wedge pressures, and things that can be obtained from a small tube being inserted into the right side of the heart to measure the pressures and provide further supporting information. And often we will have to look at the arteries with a angiogram or left heart catheterization because the treatment strategy may depend on what you find with those. Now those are the those are some of the main tests. If often, you know, you wouldn't go for a left heart catheterization straight away if you had mild or moderate disease. But I often will send those patients for either MRI scans, uh, you know, uh, or, or that, that's the main form I would say of you know longitudinal remodeling assessment. Even though I tell you, echo is getting so good now, 
we are really becoming more and more confident in reproducible, accurate measurements, uh, which take the whole heart into account. But, you know, a problem with echocardiography is the windows. You're only as good as the windows you have at that time. Whereas with MRI, you're able to have an MRI scan. You can tell to within a few milliliters. So that patient with moderate regurgitation, I want to know if the leak has become from 20 mils one year to 35 the next year. I want to know if the heart has subtly changed its remodeling over time. These are things that may push you, particularly in the primary form of disease, to an earlier surgical approach or an earlier interventional approach over time. So an MRI scan uh, in, in many specialist valve centers is having an increasing role in, in, in longitudinal disease assessment. Certainly, it's completely non-invasive, and, and, but sometimes you can use some gadolinium. <clears throat> is there any actually uh, role, uh, you know, you can do tissue character, characterization and in finding whether there is scarring in the left ventricle, does that actually influence, you know, um, you know centers as to, you know, whether it's, um, it's, it's a good time to fix the valve or, or too late if there is actually already significant LB reduction, uh, the function? You know, an MRI, an MRI scan is good like that. It can, it can pick up earlier subtle uh, decreases in, uh, in function. Yeah. yeah, it's very. It's so difficult to evaluate this the 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 pump function. You know, when you have a severe mitral insufficiency, there's the appearance that the heart is you know pumping you know very strongly. But um, you know, a lot of times you you fix those valves and you realize that the heart muscle was already starting to weaken. Does MRI actually increase the accuracy in in the detection of left ventricular dysfunction? So there's two. There's, there's two ways of looking at this. You know, the way medicine has gone now, we like to be extraordinarily evidence-based. Now, when you come to valve disease, one of the reasons I liked valve disease and went into it in the first place is there's still an art form of looking into it. Now, some people look at that and say, ah, oh, you know, art form, this is in the eye of the beholder and such, but not really, not when you can start to do things that, that really look for, because what do we want to know, right? We want to know is there subtle signs of damage? Can we pick this up before major damage occurs? So an MRI scan, you know, the role in mitral regurgitation for, for I guess, tissue characterization uh, in terms of scarring and patchy infiltration and such, that's not as well elucidated. But things such as strain rate imaging, strain imaging, tissue deformation, um, looking at the strain rate, the strain, the myocardial deformation patterns, and now an echocardiogram, we're more and more using this longitudinal circumferential radial strain patterns to look at, uh, again, what, are the, what is the little bits of tissue in the heart doing? What, once we get down to a much more you know, microscopic level, can we pick up very subtle dysfunction? And yes, you know, echo and MRI, many studies have shown that you can, in patients with mitral regurgitation, primary form particularly, over time, you can pick up subtle forms of of uh, subclinical dysfunctions, which means you can pick up the damage before it becomes very obviously apparent to the eye. And in many cases, in reference centers, again, if you're on the borderline, you've got a moderate to severe or severe form of the disease, your patient feels okay, but you know you can repair that valve. Those are one of the, you know, the factors that may tip you in the direction of, I think it's time to go ahead and get this replaced, particularly if it's a low risk, re sorry, repair, important to use the term repair particularly if it's a low risk form, you know, uh, of intervention 
because there's only one way that subclinical dysfunction is known to go. One of the biggest problems with valve disease, such as primary mitral regurgitation, is we do not have a good medical therapy. It would be great if we had a tablet that we could give these patients and say, hey, you know, your leak's going to get better over time. It's going to reverse. We don't. We know it's going to head in the worst direction. It's just a matter of when. And that's why it's so important in valve centers, not just to follow those patients that are severe and need an intervention, but the best thing you can do for someone in a watchful waiting approach is to pick someone up before what we would call they fall off the cliff. Uh, because once you go forward and enter that heart failure route, um, after you've had the intervention on the mitral valve, your heart function is known to go lower. If you take healthy people um, that have normal, you know, and I'm saying that in exclamation marks, normal function beforehand by standard echocardiography, up to 20 plus percent of those after an intervention will have what we call left ventricular dysfunction. By eyeball, I mean major obvious decrease in their function afterwards. And that's why over the years, you've seen a lot of excellent work come out from many centers that have pushed us towards a much earlier approach, particularly when the valve can be repaired in primary mitral regurgitation. Again, I want to separate this from secondary, which has an entirely different treatment pathway. I think you're right. I think in terms of treatment, you know, when we think about a primary mitral regurgitation, it's mostly, it's been a surgical disease. Now, I know you're trying to change that a little bit in the structural world, um, but uh, mostly when we discuss and when we talk about secondary uh, mitral regurgitation, the treatment of the heart failure, it's still the mainstay of the, of the treatment of these patients is you know, with the ACE inhibitors, the beta blockers, and the diuretics, um, in, including spironolactone. Um, I think in those category of patients, I mean, that is the medical treatment that we have. Yeah, you know, for, for, for primary, one other thing important to mention is the patients will come in and you'll know it's a, the valve itself is disease, like a, a severe form of prolapse. You know, there's a severe leak, but they're like, hey, I went 10 miles on the treadmill. I feel fine. And so they'll ask you, why? Why should I do anything? And so what the answer to that question is, well, what we do have, what do you know, what do we have evidence for? Evidence over time has shown that if you have atrial fibrillation, a irregular heartbeat, if you have elevated pressures in the lungs, if you have significant enlargement of the heart chambers, you're going to do worse after surgery. And so, or, you know, if you don't address those, the longer you leave those from diagnosis leads to worsening outcomes. So if any of those are present, we will definitely be pushing for a earlier repair. For the people that don't, you know, some people are saying, I just don't want to have it, even though you can provide minimally invasive or robotic. It's a big deal to have surgery. And some people, some people don't want to do that. And there we will have the conversation about, okay, this is what we are looking for. We see any of these signs, no longer can a watchful waiting versus early surgical debate happen. You are already showing high risk, you know, red flags. And again, the ones we just mentioned, uh, the, the, you know, chamber size, atrial fibrillation, pressure, symptoms. Symptoms is really important. This is where you look at the family member and the patient tells you they're doing fine. The family member says, well, that's funny because we used to go for a mile every day and now, you know, she or he doesn't want to get out of the house because, you know, they're walking uh, 
500 meters and we have to go back home again. But those are, those are the, the importance of the history taking and talking because these patients really do need something done, not just because, hey, the valve needs something doing and because it looks bad, but because we know they do worse over time once those things settle in. With 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 secondary regurgitation again, medicine might might can make a lot of difference in this. Very good. I think this is going to lead very well into our next podcast. Um, you know, which will be really on the treatment of uh, mitral regurgitation. We'll have a surgeon along, you know, Dr. Ahmed, and I think we're going to have some very interesting discussion. The field is ever changing, and it's changing so fast. Uh, it's really very exciting. Mustafa, thank you very much. I think we'll uh, close out our uh, discussion on mitral regurgitation, the leaky mitral valve. But next time, we're talking about the main treatment. Uh, thank you, Dr. Mushard. We'll uh, look forward to discussing this next time. Thank you. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.